This is the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the second half of today's program, I will be speaking with Joshua Hoffman, an inspiring young entrepreneur living in Tel Aviv since 2013, who's giving the Jewish world a good shake. To start off, I speak with Professor Jeffrey Sachs, an American economist and public policy analyst, professor at Columbia University, where he was former director of the Earth Institute. He's known for his work on sustainable development, economic development, and the fight to end poverty. He is not supportive of Israel's war in Gaza, and I chose to speak with him because of the dearth of engagement between those supportive of Israel's war against Hamas and those who are not. I start off by welcoming you to the program, Jeffrey, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, I have with me here on uh, the Israel Connection on J-Air. Jeffrey, I've listened to uh, some of the things that you've been saying about the war that's going on between Israel and Hamas. You say it's uh, a disaster in uh, one of the uh, podcasts or videos that I've seen. Why do you uh, why do you say this? Why do you believe that what Israel is doing in trying to destroy Hamas is determined in these uh, uh, draconian ways? Well, what I'm concerned about is what Israel is trying to do, according to uh, the Israeli cabinet, uh, is to uh, create greater Israel to rule over Gaza, the occupied territories, uh, and to keep a hold on uh, all of this in a way that uh, prevents peace uh, and prevents any resolution of this other than through uh, rising disaster. So I think the uh, greatest problem uh, that we face is the the war aims. Uh, As uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich and uh, Gallant and uh, Netanyahu say every day, There will never be a Palestinian state. There will uh, only be greater Israel. Uh, There will be Israeli control uh, over uh, these territories. And this is isolating Israel down to one last uh, country support, uh, the United States, uh, which is uh, wavering, to say the least, because the American people are against what Israel is doing. So this is uh, the, the terrible problem. Now, when you take that kind of goal uh, of greater Israel, which is the goal of the settler movement uh, and uh, the religious nationalists, then when you have a crisis, you see no diplomatic way, only the military way. And when you go only the military way, you see the only solution is uh, mass killing, mass displacement of the population attributing to the population uh, the the worst. Uh, And so we have what the International Court of Justice uh, has said uh, by a 16 to 1 vote, a plausible genocide underway, which of course is is profoundly shocking and horrifying. So that's the problem. The problem is that we have an extremist right-wing government in Israel, the most extremist right-wing government in its history, and it's leading Israel to disaster, in my opinion. You're highlighting there people like uh, Smotrich and Ben Gamir 
we're talking about a government though which has uh, has become uh, what it is as a response to uh, what it uh, has been dealing with well i i don't know i mean ba- basically uh, israel for the last 20 years has become almost unrecognizable to israel before 20 years ago israel now is in the hands of uh, the religious nationalist settler movement when uh, Rabin tried to do something, he was killed by uh, one of those in, in the movement. And this is basically Israeli politics. It's not really about the horrifying uh, terrorist attack on October 7. It's something that predates it and postdates it. And Smotrich was there beforehand. And just read his plan. I read his plan uh, just in the last day because he's circulating a new detailed plan. He himself says, okay, I'm a fascist. What do you want to make of it? Uh, well, he's a fascist. That's what I want to make out of it. Uh, I don't want to support a, a government with a fascist uh, cabinet that uh, is uh, as self-destructive and destructive as this one is. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's necessarily very uh, productive to be looking at the uh, people who are the extremists on uh, on one side when ignoring the uh, the rampant extremists who are uh, operating on the other side that's a very I don't know but when they're extremists I, when when they're extremists uh, that uh, have uh, the uh, wherewithal to uh, displace 2 million people and and call for ethnic cleansing absolutely vividly it's completely terrifying it's it's horrifying to me when they absolutely deny any diplomatic approach when they basically say we don't care what the whole world says i think it's very dangerous for israel extremely dangerous i work at the un i talk to ambassadors virtually every day the vote last month on uh, the call for palestinian political self-determination had four countries against israel the united states Micronesia, which by compact has to vote with the U.S., uh, and Nauru, uh, which is a country of uh, 12,000 people uh, in the South Pacific. That's the ones that side with Israel right now. You think this is prudent? And I can tell you the mood in the United States, oh, you can hear what Biden and Blinken and Schumer say, uh, but if you want to hear what young people say in the United States, maybe you'd be a little bit shocked for Israel to uh, isolate itself so radically, say, we don't care what anyone says, God gave us this land, this is blah, 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 we don't have to compromise, we don't have to do anything. Uh, Watch what's going to happen in America. I'm telling you, it's going to be a tragedy for Israel if Israel continues down this path. That's what I'm saying. Can I just take us back to um, October the 7th, please, uh, Jeffrey? Uh, what do you say that Israel could and or should could and should have possibly done instead of carrying out this uh, major assault on Gaza with its uh, obvious aims of uh, destroying Hamas? What was an alternative? Well, the the first alternative is that Netanyahu should have resigned immediately to take responsibility for the biggest uh, military intelligence failure in Israel's history because there were warnings, there were plenty of warnings. There was uh, a barrier that was uh, dramatically undermanned 
Uh, and this was a massive failure of security. This wasn't that this barrier was run over by uh, a tank brigade. Uh, this was a complete collapse of Israeli security. Netanyahu is one of the most irresponsible, failed politicians, and he should have resigned that day. That's what should have happened the first day. The second moment and the second is to reinforce the damn barrier. That's what should have happened the next moment. And then the third moment is to think, how are we really going to get security? And that involves diplomacy, too. And they don't care about diplomacy because they think doesn't matter diplomacy. We went through this with 9-11 in the United States. Again, live in a country with a completely idiotic political system and an idiotic government. And it was clear as day after 9-11 that we would self-destruct in an incredible way over the next 20 years because we're governed by idiots, basically. The first thing after 9-11 is that Bush should have taken responsibility because it was a massive security failure. But instead of that, we declared a war on the world, the global war on terror. And we went to war everywhere, we thought. Uh, and every one of these wars turned out to be a disaster. It ran up trillions of dollars of debt, cost vast numbers of lives, failed in every single instance because we didn't think for one moment. And by the way, I'm not speaking retrospectively. I am speaking as I knew it from that first moment that these stupid people who think that war is the only answer to a terrorist attack are fools because they don't think about politics. They don't think about diplomacy. They don't think about, uh, by the way, fixing security breaches. They just think about war and they think that they get their way. And so we had the war in Afghanistan. That was great, 20 years, uh, and ended up leaving from Taliban to Taliban, except that we spent trillions of dollars in between. Then we had the war over completely phony, and by the way, obviously phony, pretexts in Iraq. Then we had uh, Obama sign the presidential order to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. That one worked out great. Then we had NATO bombing Libya. That one's worked out great. Then we had uh, Obama and Hillary uh, overthrowing Yanukovych uh, in Ukraine. So that's what happened with us with 9-11. So you would have thought maybe uh, in Israel there would have been a little bit of reflection, but Netanyahu can't resign because he'll probably go to jail immediately after he resigns. So instead he goes to war. That's crazy. Well, I mean, all, all, all wars can't be uh, classified in the same bucket, I would say. Can we, I just want to imagine, what, what if uh, after October 7, the following day, the United Nations Security Council voted unanimously to condemn Hamas for war crimes, demanded the immediate return of all the hostages, and ordered Qatar to extradite Hamas leadership to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where they could have been tried for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide? Had that occurred, wouldn't we perhaps be in a position today where the people of Gaza would all be alive, the ones who were being killed by uh, the Israeli bombing? 
Yeah, and if they had voted alongside that for a two-state solution, uh, according to uh, U.N. Security Council resolutions over the last 50 years, it could have been a good package. Well, the thing is that the U.N. Security Council failed, as it often has in its uh, in its deliberations. No, no, the, 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 the problem is, the problem is that Israel wants no politics and no diplomacy. It just wants what it wants. And if it goes that way, I'm sorry to say whatever one thinks of it, it's going to end up very, very badly. It's like the U.S. after 9-11. All the self-righteousness, whatever one says, if Israel does not have a political solution to the Palestinian problem, there's no solution. But there has been uh, solutions that have been offered to the Palestinians, as you know, many, many times. Uh, there was a partition plan in '48. We've seen uh, many offers made which have, have been rejected. We know what uh, what Clinton's reaction was to the uh, to the rejection by Arafat to the peace offer, which and the one that Barak uh, gave as well, which is almost 97% of uh, what would be a, a deal made after the, uh, the the 1967 return uh, of uh, the borders uh, that were existing at that time. So yeah, we, yeah, how many yeah, times yeah, you do know, you make an offer? Uh, that uh, that goes nowhere, and and why do you want to continue doing that? It's obviously been fruitless. Well, they don't want to make that offer because it might be accepted. That's uh, that's you see what's really happening in Israel is that it's ruled by extremists. That's what's really happening in Israel, but and that is, the situation is as we speak that is now. A, that is a tragedy. Yeah, that's. What happened on October the 7th is, uh, well, didn't happen in a vacuum, as, as we heard. Go, there have been many encounters. Uh, but it didn't happen in a vacuum because, exactly, uh, uh, it, it, this goes back to 1967. It goes back even beforehand. That is absolutely correct. There needs to be a political solution to this conflict. I mean, Gaza was given back. And, 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 and. Gaza wasn't given back. Gaza was just patrolled from the outside rather than the inside. Excuse me. You couldn't move in and out of Gaza other than with Israel permission. You couldn't trade. You couldn't set up a business. You couldn't make a port. Gaza wasn't given back. Gaza was controlled like every independent organization has said under Israel's military control, period. Everybody knows that. What sort of military control did Israel have when uh, Hamas went ahead and built this enormous military infrastructure right under the UN's nose? You know what? Netanyahu's a jerk because he allowed all of the funding to go to Hamas because he knew that that would weaken the case for uh, a uh, for the Palestinian Authority and Hamas to get together. Everybody knows he was playing a game. It's another reason why he should have resigned immediately. Come on. This is uh, the, the Israelis knew about this. They let it happen. They said, oh, nothing much can happen with all of this. This is Israel's game. This is Netanyahu's game, not my game. But Come on, everybody, game. everybody, everybody knows this. So this is not even a, an issue. Netanyahu supported Hamas to do what it was doing so that there wouldn't be a Palestinian state. Divide and conquer was the strategy. Well, I think there also was a strategy of uh, placating Hamas, hoping that uh, they would uh, uh, become uh, less uh, aggressive towards I'm Israel. sorry. 
Not not uh, at the rate that uh, Israelis were, uh, that the uh, IDF was uh, killing them. I'm sorry, that was not exactly placating. There was no political solution because during the last 20 years, Israeli politics has become religious nationalist extremism. That's the tragedy. There is a powerful block, which is actually the governing block, that believes that the book of Joshua is really the guidepost for 21st century Israeli diplomacy. The book of Joshua says all this land is ours and you can kill anyone in it that uh, refuses to accept that all this land is ours. Well, I don't believe that that's a fruitful approach for Israel in the 21st century, but Smotrich does, Ben Gavir does, Gallant does, and so that's a real problem. I don't know, by the way, if uh, Netanyahu has anything but profound narcissism and cynicism, but in any event, his cabinet partners are really something. They are zealots, and they have been running the show, and that is a problem, and they're running the show right now. So all I'm saying is Israel can make every argument it wants, but I would uh, try to be realistic if I were Israel right now. And, and what I would say is take a look at the world. The world is aghast at what Israel is doing. Israel's got one backer left, and that's the United States government. And it is the backer, and it funds Israel, and it funds the munitions, and it provides uh, the wherewithal for the war. But what I'm trying to tell you and also say to uh, Israelis is inside the United States, public opinion is running strongly against Israel. They are not going to back Israel's greater Israel view. Americans did not really understand who Smotrich was or who Ben Gavir was. They didn't know anything about this. They view Israel as something uh, like 1948 or uh, 1967. They don't understand what's happened to Israel. But they're learning right now very fast. And boy, you look at uh, the public opinion under the age of 35 in in this country. Israel's lost it. If Israel thinks that it's going to get along with no partners in the world, that's really sad. Really it's, not, it's not really a fundamental problem, really, Jeffrey, because uh, we we both know that uh, Israel would, will go to elections very soon after this uh, war comes to some kind of conclusion. And it's more than likely that uh, Netanyahu will, will no longer be in power. Because, well, maybe uh, something good will change at that point. So, so That's I, possible. I don't think we need to be as pessimistic as, uh, as you're uh, uh, playing it. Uh, yeah, but what I, <laughs> Netanyahu doesn't want the war to end. <laughs> That's the whole point. He wants just to keep killing. He doesn't care what the International Court of Justice says. Even after uh, all these uh, genocidal statements, these ethnic cleansing statements, these terrible statements were repeated in the International Court of Justice, these ministers went right out and repeated it again in Tel Aviv last week. So this, I think, is the, this, I think, is the serious problem. Now, if, if this government falls and another government comes in and says, look, we want a diplomatic solution, I'll feel much better about it. So I hope you're right. <laughs> you're cheering me up. 
Yeah, I think we didn't get into the uh, article that I first caught onto what you were saying, which was in uh, Common Dreams about the uh, the ICJ. The, the problem with this plausibility argument is the, that the bar on this argument is extremely low. Statements that have been made by uh, by Israelis, the Israeli leadership, uh, one that have been dismissed as being really quite ridiculous in terms of uh, reflecting that the genocide is uh, going on. So isn't this uh, ICJ, this ICJ ruling has been deemed by many just to be the, the way that the UN goes about its work of, uh, of its anti-Israel bias? I would just uh, urge people to understand a, a lot better uh, the International Court of Justice. There was a ruling of uh, 17 judges. Uh, these are leading global jurists, uh, and they made a very, uh, very heavy ruling uh, that there's plausibility of genocide and they are of course going to uh, adjudicate this issue probably within the next uh, 12 to 24 months and if in the end uh, israel is found uh, guilty of genocide under the 1948 genocide convention the consequences will be extraordinarily heavy for Israel for a long time to come. So I would not take this lightly. Uh, I would uh, urge people to take it seriously. This is not a political game. Uh, these are not politicians. This isn't a, an intergovernmental process. This is the International Court of Justice. And if it does make that ruling, the uh, weight on Israel politically, geopolitically, socially, psychologically, historically, will be extremely heavy. And I'm very much worried about it because I speak to uh, a lot of uh, international legal specialists, a lot of jurists, a lot of experts uh, in international law. They take all of this extremely seriously, uh, not politicians. I'm talking about international law specialists, uh, professors uh, around the world. They don't view this uh, as a game. They view this uh, as a, a matter of uh, profound concern. So that's my feeling. This isn't going to be something glibly explained by uh, some smirk of Netanyahu. This is going to be something that would weigh extraordinarily heavily upon Israel for a long time to come. Israel didn't dismiss it. Israel did take it seriously. Israel represented itself at the International Court of Justice. The yeah. political game the, 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 the government did not by South Africa. The, the government did not take it seriously after the ruling. Uh, it dismissed it. Uh, the ministers trashed it, and then they went right out and they continued the same statements. Uh, uh, I'm thinking uh, especially of uh, the Tel Aviv event which uh, simply reiterated all of the ethnic cleansing uh, claims. And then uh, what came to my inbox of uh, Smotrich's uh, plan, where he could not be more explicit that it's literally ethnic cleansing or apartheid, we'll find a nice place for you, or we'll kill you. <laughs> it's those three uh, pillars spelled out explicitly well you could say he's just one minister he happens to be a key minister in this government you could say well it's just this government maybe another one will come but it happens to be israel's government right now carrying out this war in gaza
Now, the court made a decision that Hamas must immediately and unconditionally release all the hostages. And um, no, so no effective pressure is being exerted on Hamas to do that. Israel has been asked to uh, produce a monthly uh, report about its activities to show that it's not uh, carrying out genocide. There's no onus on Hamas. Hamas is a non-state actor. It's getting, getting away scot-free. This shows that basically the international um, law regarding this, uh, this situation is appalling. Well, it's sad. Uh, from the the moment of the ruling, Israel went on uh, dropping bombs uh, and uh, killing uh, and uh, demolishing uh, universities, hospitals, mosques, and schools in Gaza. So they paid no heed to it at all. Now they say that they're uh, sending the IDF to Rafah, uh, the place where they told the Palestinians, "You go for safety." So uh, whether uh, another massacre is on the way, we'll wait to uh, see. Uh, God help us. Uh, I hope uh, not, but uh, it's it's quite possible. Yeah, well, Israel's mission, as it maintains all along, is to root out uh, Hamas, and uh, unfortunately, with the, the way that they operate, it, well, uh, it's is, is extremely uh, difficult yeah. task. Israel's mission, as they explain it every day, is to rule over greater Israel. And if that's the no. mission, it will never be accepted. No, I think you're, that's the, the Ben Gvirs and the, and, and the Smotriches and the, uh, that's right. the extreme right wing. They, but that isn't what Israel fundamentally wants and Netanyahu's uh, quite uh, flatly denied it. Well, I, I hope you're right, but that happens to be the government position. Right. All right, well... Uh, we uh, agree to disagree, and but I think it's important that we speak people who have got opposing views because that isn't happening uh, that much uh, in, in the. I really appreciate it. It, it. Yeah, good, very good to speak with you. I I do appreciate it. Me too. Good. All right. Take care. All best wishes. Well, following my interview with Professor Jeffrey Sachs, which you just heard, I sent him an email drawing his attention to the toxic atmosphere at Columbia University in New York where Professor Sachs is a a resident professor. A Jewish student at Columbia was harassed by violent anti-Israel protesters, scaring the wits out of the student as he was pressed up against a wall and threatened. Professor Sachs responded by ignoring my remark and pointing out instead his worry of an impending massacre in Rafah, Hamas's last stronghold in Gaza. No doubt Israel must put into operation a serious plan to protect the civilian population in Gaza, so I certainly hope that Israel can manage to do this. Before I introduce my next guest, Joshua Hoffman, I'm going to play a portion of a podcast from Times of Israel senior analyst Haviv Retigur, in which Haviv expounds on the possible outcome of the war in Gaza. Haviv is visiting Israel, is visiting Australia at the moment, on behalf of ZDVO Bet Alochem, and tonight will be they will be hosting an event supporting the thousands of wounded soldiers that are the product of this war with Hamas. To find out more, go to the ZDVO website, that's zdvo.com, where you can book tickets. A similar event will take place in Sydney next Tuesday, February the 20th. Now we're entering two visions of victory. They share one characteristic, which is neither of these visions of victory are about the war itself. They're about what happens after the war. The war is a path, is a stepping stone. Hamas is an obstacle to another horizon that is where victory can be found or lost. But the victory is the political solution after. And that is how the Americans are thinking and talking, and the, the West generally. And it's also how the Arab conservative Sunni states, who 
want to normalize with Israel, aren't part of the radical axis, don't want Israel destroyed, but nevertheless can't move forward without a political horizon for the Palestinians. It's worth saying that there's something that this second camp, that its vision of victory isn't a military vision, it's a political vision afterwards. There's something that they understand about the first camp, which is the various military visions of victory, that the first camp do not, the Hamas does not, that the Arab and Muslim world, the populations, the publics looking at this war do not, which is that this isn't Algeria. It is possible. The reason Hamas is wrong in thinking that it is winning is, in fact, it's it's useful for Israel for the whole world to be set against it in this war and for it to still implacably move forward. That is useful because there is a story that Hamas tells Palestinians that we are this kind of colonialist enemy that can, through these colonial strategies, be pushed out. It's hard to explain to them our history, that we are all the grandchildren of refugees, that in fact we come from 60 countries, that we have nowhere to go, and therefore that we're not going to get pushed out, and therefore that the Algeria strategy or the Kenya strategy or the Vietnam strategy is not going to work on us. It's hard to explain that analytically. I mean, we try, but it's hard. But you can explain it if you show it. So we are now testing Hamas, Arab world, Palestinians telling pollsters the Palestinians are winning because this is the beginning of the end of Israel, because they are getting so many people upset at them. Telling post that is fantastic for the war effort. And the reason it's fantastic for the war effort is that the only audience that matters in this war are Israelis and Palestinians. The global moral judgment does not actually matter. We are real humans living our real lives. Nobody can wish us out of existence. Not Israelis, not Palestinians. The two audiences who matter are the Palestinians and the Israelis. What my children's future will look like will be profoundly affected by what Palestinians think, not by what, I don't know what, college students in America or people in China or people, frankly, in Algeria think. I need to convince Palestinians that the message Hamas is selling them on, that the future, the strategy, sacrifice now, suffer now, go through interminable war now, because there is an ultimate, complete, and pure, and absolutely undeniable redemption coming, where the Jews all leave or die. That story isn't available to them. That is not going to happen, and therefore Hamas is only destroying them. Now, how do I show them that? If the entirety of this whirlwind comes crashing down on me, and I'm still standing at the end of it. Paradoxically, all of the things that the Arab world thinks are a victory all of that sense of, of vast mobilization and empathy for Palestinians. I hope they get a lot of empathy. They deserve empathy. But the think theory that that is the beginning of our end, that is being tested. And I'm happy that's being tested because I need them to see it fail so that they can wake up to new strategies, to better strategies that might work. And that brings us to the political questions, to the political solutions. What the Saudis and Emiratis have said to us, and they've said it openly, we will be part of the rebuilding the day after. I interpret that to mean finish the job and we'll clean up. I interpret that to mean you need to get rid of Hamas. The Saudis and Emiratis have been in a deep internal Islamic civil war in the Sunni side between the conservative governments, the conservative ideas, and these radicals, the Muslim Brotherhood of which Hamas is a part. And they would like that pushed back. 
Hamas is also embedded in the Iranian axis. Even though it's Sunni and Iran is Shia, the basic ideas of, of Islamic renewal and the need to destroy Israel in order to renew Islam and bring Islam back into history as an agent of history, those basic ideas are shared between Hamas and the Iranian regime. And Saudi Arabia would like that pushed back as well. So they're desperate for us to win. But the only way they can win and still normalize and still have Israel as an ally and have that victory in Gaza be sustained. Netanyahu talks constantly about de-radicalizing Gaza. Nobody knows how to de-radicalize Gaza, right? It's not something we Israeli Jews know how to do. We don't know how to de-radicalize. I don't even know what the word might mean. How do I go into a Sunni Arab society and de-radicalize it, right? But the Saudis have de-radicalized Saudi Arabia after 9-11. They spent decades fighting tooth and nail closing madrasas, arresting people, changing curriculum, and actually de-radicalizing their own society. So when they're saying, we're going to come in to help rebuild, that's not about building buildings. It is about building buildings, but America knows how to build buildings. What the Saudis offer, and they offer it so that the fall of Hamas sticks, so it doesn't come surging back, is de-radicalization. That's what they bring to the table, is de-radicalization, that nobody else can bring to the table. And so they're talking about almost a pro-Israel. It's not pro-Israel, it's pro-Palestinian, but it's it's massively in Israel's own interest, even in the view of, of, of a right-wing government, to de-radicalize Gaza after Hamas and to make that victory stick. It depends on the victory, but after the victory, victory is not enough. You have to deliver that political horizon for Palestinians, and we're going to make it possible. The Americans are saying similar things. Biden, for domestic political reasons, and also, I think, because he genuinely believes it. He says, I'll hold the window open for you, finish off Hamas. But in his view, Hamas isn't the enemy, the purpose of the war. Hamas is the great obstacle one of the great obstacles to two states, to peace, to a future that he, as a lifelong Democrat, believes in. And so if I get rid of Hamas, it makes it easier for me to come to Israel and say, okay, political horizon, let's have peace, let's have, let's have self-determination for the Palestinians. So you've just been listening to a portion of a podcast with uh, the Times of Israel senior analyst Aviv Retigur, who is visiting Australia at the moment. Uh, he'll be speaking uh, tonight at an event for ZDVO Beit Alochem, and you can go to the ZDVO website, zdvo.com, to book a ticket, or if you're in Sydney, it'll be on next Tuesday, February the 20th. Now, my next guest is uh, meant to be Joshua Hoffman, uh, who is uh, situated in Israel, uh, we were scheduled to go on now, but I haven't caught him coming onto the line, so we'll need to go to some music while I hopefully get him to come on the line and speak with us. שעצוב לי אז בורחת אל הים, אל הים לא מבינה הכל אבל כבר מקבלת המוזיקה שמתנגנת מציפה, מציפה 
קח אותי ואותך לא מבינה הכל אבל לאט לומדת כמו רואה את עדר שתיקותיך מנשקת Joshua Hoffman's now uh, materialized. I'm going to introduce you, Joshua. You're a 35-year-old Los Angeles native and long-time entrepreneur living in Tel Aviv since 2013. You've written three books and you founded Izzy, the online Israeli streaming service. And currently you're leading a nimble team of researchers and guest writers who are dedicated to bringing you the best of Judaism, Israel and the Jewish world on a daily basis. So welcome to the Israel Connection, Joshua. Thank you for having me, David. Okay, we had trouble getting you this morning. Maybe you, you were up late this morning or, or something. No, I just had some uh, Zoom update problems. That was all. Okay. Well, we got you now, so let's uh, get into it uh, quick smart. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing you back in November 2020 uh, to talk about how you had just co-founded and were serving as the head of marketing for Izzy, a media tech company on a mission to enhance the world's relationship with Israel through remarkable entertainment experiences via their online streaming platform. Now, you've decided to leave Izzy. Uh, Is it for reasons of moving on to other ventures uh, and... Izzy, you're putting Izzy behind you. What was the reason that you uh, that you left Izzy, and how was Izzy going as far as you're aware? Um, I left for mutually beneficial reasons. You know, I felt that I was able to bring all the value I could bring to that venture. Um, my business partner wanted to continue with it. I wanted to pursue other things, so we came to a mutual agreement um, that we were going to part ways. Um, as far as I know, Izzy is still alive and kicking and doing quite well. Um, and, you know, obviously I only wish for, for its success. Yes, we both feel the same. But more recently, uh, you started Future of Jewish, which apparently has become the fastest growing independent publication about Judaism in Israel, featuring some 65,000 odd subscribers from over 50 countries. So what are you aiming to achieve with Future of Jewish? You know, it's an interesting question because Future of Jewish kind of happened organically without any real master plan, unlike Izzy. You know, Izzy was very much um, calculated and conceptualized. And Future of Jewish um, started in early 2022. Um, I had just read a book by a um, kind of a, a, I wouldn't call him a friend, but sort of a colleague of mine. Uh, he wrote a book, Zach Bodner, who runs the JCC in Palo Alto, California, called Why Do Jewish? And he sent me an advanced copy, and I read the book, and I was very moved uh, by the contents of the book. And, the, the you know, the book is sort of uh, half about interpersonal Judaism and half about the organized Jewish world. 
And that was kind of the first time that I really understood that there was this thing called an organized Jewish world. And I wanted to do more research about it because um, Zach in his book talked about a lot of uh, worrisome trends that um, have, have been happening over several decades in the Jewish world across the world. Things like intermarriage, things like um, sort of the, the lack of popularity of of religion and faith and spirituality in many places in the Western world um, and a variety of other trends, some of which I knew about, some of which I didn't. So Future of Jewish started sort of as a research project where I reached out to hundreds of different thought leaders, rabbis, community activists, um, government officials in Israel to really understand where we were as an organized Jewish world over the last few decades where we are today and hopefully where we can go if we can steer the thing in the right direction. And Future of Jewish just started as sort of me uh, live live blogging in a way, my conversations that I was having with these really fascinating folks, many of whom were telling me things that they were not saying publicly, that were, they would not share um, in, in public forums, but in our private conversations they were telling me things that um, were quite different than what was being said publicly by by different groups different organizations different people and I, fa I found it to be very interesting and i wanted to write about it from there future of jewish has evolved into different um sort of avenues when the war broke out on october 7 2023 i was you know that saturday i was sleeping in my bed in tel aviv and got woken up by rocket alarms at about 6 58 in the morning I went back to sleep, got woken up again around 10, 10, 30 a.m. a few mm. hours later by more rocket alarms. Um, people said, why don't you, you know, my readers were kind of encouraging me privately, why don't you write about and talk about what you're experiencing and seeing sort of on the front lines in Israel. And that's what we've been doing ever since on Future of Jewish. Yeah, no shortage of uh, things to write about uh, at, at the present time, uh and you 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 write quite a bit of uh, material yourself, aren't you, uh, Josh? From what I can uh, yeah, what I can see. Yeah, we we started doing one essay a day. Now we're up to two essays a day. Um, we send out one essay every twelve hours, and yeah, there's just so much to talk about. Obviously, you know, I think one of the things that is important for us, uh, we're a small team, but but what's important for us is. To provide the much-needed context, nuance, history, and depth that you will not get in a newscast, um, that you will not get on social media, per se, um, you know, there's so much to talk about, um, both presently but also historically, about Israel, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about the Middle East, um, and so we try to really unpack as much as possible and at the same time, do it in a way that's still digestible and easy to understand and hopefully resonate for, for our people and our readers around the world. So how can one subscribe to Future of Jewish? Yeah, so literally just going to www.futureofjewish.com. Pretty simple. And uh, just click on the button there, which obviously says uh, to, to tap into uh, what, what you're offering. Yeah, originally Future of Jewish was actually a paid paid publication. Um, I'm not a big lover of advertising-supported content. I mean, I know it works for certain platforms, but for us, I wanted something clean and um, sort of non-abrasive. non, non -abrasive. Um, 
but since the October 7th terrorist attacks and the subsequent war, we've made everything free. So people can just go to futureofjewish.com. They can subscribe for free, get everything for free, and hopefully enjoy. And in addition to your uh, digital publication, the essays you've been talking about, uh, which apparently numbers now more than 400, uh, listeners are invited to also check out your podcasts uh, available on Apple, Google and Spotify. Do you get access to the podcasts in the same way? Yeah, so we link to the podcast every time we put out a new essay, but people can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify. They can subscribe to those platforms and then they can automatically get our new episodes when we publish them. And um, each essay essentially has a complimentary um, podcast episode, which is actually not done through my voice. It's done through artificial intelligence. Um, Sounds very good, very easy to listen to. Um, and we just we you know our, we wanted to provide two opportunities for people to engage right for people that like to read we have the essays for people that maybe have a busier lifestyle or don't want to make the time to read or enjoy listening for different reasons more than reading um, they have those two options and we found that that's been a good balance for us. So the podcasts uh, bring out the same information that uh, one gets from the essays. Is that correct? Is that, yep. Yeah, okay. So you just choose your preferred medium. Now let's uh, run through some of the publications and podcasts that have appeared of late on your platform just to give people a flavour of of what you're talking about on Future of Jewish. Do you want to give us some examples of the the topics that may appear? I I can suggest a few that I've seen recently that you might want to just tell us a little bit about uh, what, the, what what was the basis of choosing this as a topic and what you covered essentially and what you wrote? Uh, let's let's look at uh, we'd rather be alive and have the bad image. Yeah. So, so, you know, what we try to do is we try to keep our pulse on what's happening on a day to day basis um, in terms of the war, in terms of sort of international relations between Israel and the rest of the world. Um, there's so many different moving parts, as you know. There's the Israeli side, there's the Palestinian side, there's the Hamas side, there's the Gaza side, there's you know Egypt and Qatar and some of the other players in the Middle East, like the Saudis and um, the Emiratis and other, other states, obviously the Iranians, uh, Hezbollah. Um, so we're, we're really just trying to keep a pulse on, on what's going on on a day-to-day basis and then provide context and nuance and depth on some of the more pressing um, matters or issues that we, f- we feel are most relevant. Um, the, you know, the, the one that you mentioned, we'd rather be alive and have the bad image, you know, that's actually taken from a quote uh, that was spoken by Golda Meir, of course, the former uh, Prime Minister of Israel and the uh, Israel's only female Prime Minister uh, of of the country's last seventy five years, and the full quote is that uh, if we have to choose between being dead in pity and being alive with a bad image, we'd rather be alive and have the bad image. Um, that's what she said, and you know I think that there's so much, um, you know, especially now with with Rafa being um, kind of a uh, a focus point in the Gaza Strip, the Rafah obviously being one of the, the towns in Gaza that has apparently over a million Palestinians living there, many of which have, um, you know, taken refuge there from other from their homes in other parts of Gaza. 
It's on the border with Egypt uh, in the south of the Strip. And, you know, everyone's a lot of world leaders and, you know, the United Nations and other bodies are coming out and saying you can't go into Rafah, even though we know from the Israeli side, we know that, um, you know, a lot of uh, Hamas terrorists and Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorists have taken refuge there as well. We know it's crucial for Israel's war aims, and yet everyone's speaking out and saying, well, you know, you can't go there, there's too many people there, it's too densely populated, where are all the people going to go if they have to evacuate? And our, and our you know, that the, the point of that essay was basically to say, we, you know, Israel has to do what Israel has to do, and if you don't like it, we're okay with that, because if we do not um, dismantle and hopefully eradicate Hamas and uh, other terror groups in the Gaza Strip, uh, if if we do not take care of business, uh, speaking from Israel's side, you know, it's it's not going to get better for Israel. It's going to get worse. And it's going to get re- worse for the 9 million people that live there, including me, including my family and my friends. And so the point of that essay was, was quite clear. We're going to do what we have to do. If the world doesn't like it, so be it. Yes. Uh, what, um, how do you uh, get your feed that uh, you you use to uh, talk about all these different uh, subjects what what media do you tend to look at yourself to get abreast of what's uh, going on yeah it's a good question um you know i mean i can throw out you know obviously times of israel jerusalem post ynet which is uh, a hebrew language uh, israeli media company um I spend a lot of time on X, which was formerly Twitter, of course, uh, Instagram. Um, you know, I, I obviously look at, you know, everything today is kind of, for example, Times of Israel, when they report, they report on what other media outlets have reported, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. So everything is kind of uh, mixed today. And also, I see a lot of things on social media, like Instagram and X, that maybe I don't go and seek out those platforms, you know, for example, like, I don't know, um, Israel Hayom, you know, it's not a platform that I go and seek out specifically for their website, but I see a lot of their stuff on X. Some of it's interesting, some of it less, in my opinion. Um, You know, look at things like The Atlantic, um, look at some of the Jewish sites, Australian Jewish News, for example, uh, UK Jewish News. Um, You know, for us, you know, a lot of a lot of people in the media talk about being apolitical. There, I don't think there's a such thing as being apolitical. I think, you know, especially when you're dealing with the situation that we're dealing with and the, um, you know, political entity that is Israel, obviously, and the political, socio-political dynamic that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, everything's political to an extent. We try to be incredibly down-the-line centrist as much as possible, Um you know, I know we're doing a good job when I have two groups of people telling me simultaneously, one group saying you're too left, the other group saying you're too right. I feel like that means we're doing a good job of really going down the middle. Okay. So how has the war in Gaza affected you, yourself, personally? What what can you say, uh, regardless of, I mean, you've mentioned how you first became aware of what was going on with the bombs going off but since then uh, in terms of your uh, friendships relationships uh, overall experience living in israel at the present time what would you say uh, is the effect the war is having on you personally 
Yeah, I mean, you know, emotionally, psychologically devastating. Um, you know, the first week was like I think everyone, both in Israel and around the world, just shell shock. Um, you know, all the feelings that anyone would imagine: depression, stress, anxiety, uh, immense sadness, anger. Um, but I, I try to maintain perspective and understand that I'm really one of the most least like least uh, affected people by this. I have friends that you know were caught up to reserves. Many of them have young families. Um, you know, obviously, all the people that were massacred and injured on October the seventh, uh, the families that were torn apart. Um, the families that were completely annihilated, you know, uh, the hostages, the soldiers that we've lost um, fighting this war, the, the soldiers that have, you know, been tremendously injured, losing limbs and, uh, you know, PTSD and all, all that. So, you know, I try to have that perspective and say, yeah, obviously, you know, I'm a human being like everyone else. So I have, you know, feelings, but. I think that um, you know it's important to to realize for me that um, I'm grateful that I wasn't directly directly affected, and you know Israel is a very resilient place. I wasn't born there; I was born in Los Angeles, and I lived in in California for the first 24 years of my life, and I moved to Israel when I was 24. So I don't, you know, I'm not fully Israeli in terms of that Sabra DNA, that that truly resilient. Um, sort of, you know, we'll get past everything attitude. I think I've adopted some of it living in Israel for the last 10 years. And and definitely when I sort of compare myself to some of my American friends and even family members, I, I, I see a, a clear gap. Um, but Israelis are very resilient. And, and yes, this has been, you know, the worst single day attack on Israel ever. Um, obviously, for Jews in general, the, the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. Um, but but Israelis, you know, you're starting to see in Israel in the last, I would say, maybe 30 to 45 days in terms of the society starting to, you know, take a turn and starting to get back to sort of day to day life as, as much as possible, not just in, in, in doing and, you know, going to work and things of that nature. But in in the mentality and the mindset of saying, you know what, this is this has been our reality, frankly, for as long as Jews and the Zionist movement um, started to take you know take hold and, and gain steam in the 1800s. This is nothing new. Now the you know the 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 weapons of war and and the technology and all that stuff is new. Um, but in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, obviously we know that's not new. The Arab-Israeli conflict is not new. Anti-Semitism is not new, um, especially in the Middle East. And so, um, you know, I think slowly but surely we're starting to um, get our bearings back. I think we're making tremendous progress militarily. Um, against Hamas and um, other terror groups within the Palestinian um, landscape, and you know it's going to be a long war. Even even after you know this immediate war is is put to bed, what you know, whenever that is, the war doesn't stop. 
and the war doesn't stop as long as Iran and potentially other actors in the Middle East, um, you know, continue to do what they've been doing and what they've vied to, you know, what they claim that they want to do. So it's just one of those things where eventually you have to kind of get used to it, which is a, it's a very weird thing to say, uh, especially after such a tragedy on October 7th and, and the war that's followed. But, you know, frankly, that's just the Jewish story. And as a microcosm, that's the Israeli story. And that's sort of how I try to look at it. Just on a lighter note, uh, Josh, to finish up, I understand you were mad about basketball. Uh, Israel's women's team had a significant victory over a team from a country that's not very friendly toward Israel. Don't know whether you wrote anything about this, but you know about the incident. Do you want to just tell us uh, what happened? Yeah, we didn't dedicate a full essay to the incident, but we did mention it in one of our essays. Um, you know, pre-game ceremony, the Irish women's basketball team refused to shake the hands of the Israeli women's basketball team. Israel promptly thumped them by 30 points. I think it was 87-57 was the final score of that game, Israel prevailing. And, you know, again, it's it's not surprising. I don't think anyone in Israel was surprised. I, I wasn't surprised um, when I read that. But, you know, I think Israel spoke not with their words, but with their actions in a resounding victory. And, and I think that's a microcosm for hopefully how this war with Hamas is going to go, you know. Israel, uh, I'm assuming most of your, of your listeners and you, you yourself know that Israel doesn't do a whole lot of talking. You know, uh, the Palestinians love to talk. Uh, and, ob and obviously what they say, both their threats, but also some of their uh, statements don't match their actions. Um, Israel likes to do the work more or less do less talking and I think that the Israeli women's basketball team showed that on that day Well you've certainly been showing what uh, what you're made of uh, Joshua as a young person is out there doing a lot uh, f uh, for for Israel and the, and the Jewish world I much appreciate you giving some time to us today on the Israel Connection Thank you so much for having me So I just was speaking with uh, Joshua Hoffman uh, from Future of Jewish and uh, until next week it's uh, goodbye from the Israel Connection